0: You're listening to Misty Radio on WMBR Cambridge, 88.1 FM. I'm your host, Snye Sampson-Hill. Today is an episode on exploration. We're going to talk about French history with a Parisian tour guide, Israeli culture with a former Misty student, and more. We think you'll learn some new things about these two countries. While we can't roam the streets of Paris right now, we can try to emulate the experience virtually. And that's what our next guest, Kevi Duna, has been doing. Kevy is a French tour guide and founder of Le Paris Noir, who provides, quote, an alternative and authentic vision of Paris, mainly through the lens of Black history, which is a perspective that's often been overlooked. In partnership with MIT France, they hosted a discussion on post-colonial France. But the conversation didn't end there. After the event, our program assistant, Bridget McMahon and Ari Jakobovits spoke more extensively with Kevy about the history of race, religion and class in France, cultural identity, and so much more that we had to split the interview into two parts. Let's get into the first half.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me. Hi, everybody.
2: Yeah. So my first kind of, uh, kind of segue into conversation today was um, pulling from the tour. One of the themes that you really mentioned was kind of the legal segregation happening in the U.S and the draw of black Americans to Paris as a result. So I kind of wanted to talk a little bit more about that kind of almost asylum that they were seeking and if it was more just Paris or other parts of France um, and how that impacted, um, that movement impacted Paris at that time and beyond.
1: Yeah, so the, the, the question you just asked is really related to a, a part of a, of my tour that takes place in, in the north of Paris in the area of Pigalle and the first part of the tour is all about the 1920s and what people used to call Harlem-sur-Seine, Harlem like the neighborhood in, in New York and Seine like the river in Paris because there was a community of African-American uh, artists uh, living in Paris and one of the the main assets, the, 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 the good side for them of, of Paris was the lack of legal segregation which means No one was allowed to tell you, you cannot stay here because of your race. You you cannot study here or marry that person because of your race. So for some people like Langston Hughes or Josephine Baker, Paris has always been an exciting place. Uh, But at the same time, uh, as a tour guide and someone who's really into history, uh, I, I feel like I also have to mention that it's not because there's no legal segregation at the time in, in Paris in the 20s or in the 30s that there's no uh, racism or anti-Semitism or any other kind of, of discrimination because because there is. It's just another type of dynamics, and that's also something I, I try to talk about uh, in the tour. Uh, someone who's really uh, dear uh, uh, to to me is of course James Baldwin, who who is uh, uh, in Paris between the 1940s and the 1950s, and is uh, is is totally aware of of the fact that uh, for him, being an American in Paris is a form of privilege, or at least something that is going to to grant him some sort of status or position than that other uh, people of color are not going to to enjoy in Paris. He's always uh, talking about Algerians, uh, uh, for instance, and relating with the the African-American condition in America. So so yeah, so these type of dynamics are really uh, uh, something I really delve into uh, on the tour. Uh, so it's, it's a, like a sort of decentralized uh, vision of Paris. And there's always the, the question of French assimilation. Um, in a way, if you are being coloni- being colonized by the French, they would tell you it's, it's an opportunity. It's a luck. It's a, it's a privilege because the other colonizers, they were not really considering you like British or Portuguese, where with with the French, you're really part of this a great project that is the French Republic, and you have to be uh, um, thankful and uh, thankful about it and, and criticism' are not really welcome uh, when, when it comes to to that history and I also think uh, that's the reason why there's uh, so much uh, taboo around race uh, in france it 's because all these questions are uh, for a lot of french people it 's some sort of distractions that that we should not mention too much
3: right so there so on on the books, so to speak, there is no racial component of French no. culture. In practice, however, it is felt.
1: Well, this is one of the first points uh, of, of the tool, especially when I do it with, with Americans. I explain people that uh, France is probably uh, the most diverse, uh, diverse country in Europe. But I say probably because we don't have official numbers about it. And there's no ethnic statistics in France. That's like a, a big no-no. Uh, so, yeah, that, that, that's, that is exactly the opposite of what you guys are doing. So, so that's also something that shows differences that, that we have.
3: And, and is, the, is the lack of statistics, like, part of that centralizing French culture? Uh, is, there not a, is there not a push to actually change that in the country?
1: Yeah, but that's a very complex uh, conversation. Uh, people are afraid that of tribalism that we usually call communautarism. The, the, the fear that you know uh, people are going to be so attached to their ethnic or religious uh, identity that they don't—they are not going to feel French anymore. So that's that's like a, a big fear. And there's also the the, the the fear that these statistics could be uh, used in a very uh, hurtful way. Uh, there is the history of, of the 1940s with uh, uh, the Jewish community of, of, uh, of France, and it has been a, a disaster for them. So there's always the fear that the government collecting this type of data could be, in a way, potentially uh, harmful. So, so that's, that's a very, very, very uh, sensitive conversation that politicians have, I don't know, every six months, whenever there's a, a, a big racial problem, someone say, oh, what about ethnic statistics? And it's always the same.
2: Wow, so kind of connected to that, um, on one of your um, stops, you stop in the Luxembourg Gardens, and I know there's different elements of the, the Senate and statues and different things involved, but one thing that really stuck out to me um, that you talk about is the sculpture there with the broken chains, yep. and kind of how that was came about, and um, kind of the impact I guess what that what that means with regards to racism and talking about this in France.
1: Um, so yes, so in the Luxembourg Garden, so in, in on the left bank of Paris, there's a there's a memorial dedicated to the abolition of slavery. The memorial is there for nine years, and it's not that visible. Like uh, the the garden itself is very popular, but for some reason, right, it's in the location, and most people will never see it. And so every year on May the 10th, May the 10th is the national day for the commemoration of of the abolition of slavery. So the president of France uh, gives a speech there. Uh, But um, there are also conversations about uh, statues of French uh, politicians from the 16 or 1700s uh, that were somehow involved in slavery, slave trade, and so on. And recently, like one month ago or two months ago, our president said that, uh, there's not going to, to be any conversation uh, about removing statues that uh, uh, we are not going to erase anything uh, of our history and um, and that's it so so you you have uh, tensions between uh, younger activists who who are part of a more like global movement of uh, questioning these men that we choose to honor and uh and uh, and the government who doesn't want to 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 hear about it so so it's 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 interesting also to see who is on what side even though even though it's a very complex uh question uh as as, as a tour guide uh, sometimes problematic statues are helping me <laughs> because i'm like yeah this is exactly what i'm talking about but 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 i, I it's it's really really uh, uh more complex than that yeah
3: Do you see uh, yeah. like black lives matter Oriented or connected movements happening in France right now, and sort of how does that take shape? Yes.
1: So, so for, for, for four years now, there is a, a movement uh, led by a woman named Asa Traoré. She's the, the sister of a man, a black man named Adam Traoré, who was uh, killed by the police in 2016. And there's been uh, a case that has, like, basically no one is really prosecuted prosecuted. And uh, so, so there's been a lot of, it, it has become a very um, uh, por- polarizing issue in the way that uh, the name of Adama Traoré became the name of the of the movement against police brutality. And for, um, for a lot of uh, French politicians, for instance, uh, talking about um, uh, police brutality is nonsense because police is um, basically the expression of, of the republic of the people. So talking about police brutality does not really make sense and it's offensive. So, so once again, uh, it's interesting to, to see how these conversations are being translated. And al- also a, a, a big, um, like a lot of people said uh, on the more conservative side that uh, these conversations were imported from America, that uh, police brutality is not really a French issue uh, that is just like uh, young people being inspired by, by by what they see on TV on social media and are trying to to repeat it, and um, and I think it's not. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that uh, uh, it's 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 interesting and, and positive because it is the middle of the museum, so you cannot really skip that part if you if you walk in. So you like everybody has to to go there, and it's a very interesting uh, section because it's quite recent and new and there are a lot of um, you know, animations and interactive screens and things like that. So, so I, I think they, they did a good job uh, on that part.
3: When did France abolish slavery and where is it relative to some of the um, European, the other European countries and perhaps some countries on the other side of the Atlantic? So, so
1: France abolished slavery twice once in 1794 at the time of the French Revolution, uh, because there were very uh, important uh, riots and insurrections in in Haiti, in Saint-Domingue at the time. And it was also the time of the French Revolution. So liberal ideas of abolitionism were more accepted. And slavery was then uh, reestablished in 1802 by Napoleon which started the, the Haitian War of Independence, and then the independence of Haiti. And for the other colonies, slavery went back until
3: 1848. OK. So, and so, so the th- first time, it was sort of it was ended by sort of this liberal ideology, yeah. perhaps more grounded in human rights. The second time, was it that? Or was it more driven by the church? Like in, in the US, no, oftentimes, you find that religious leaders were some of the ones who are most involved in the anti-abolition.
1: Well, they were They were definitely important, uh, for instance, Catholic uh, abolitionists, such as uh, Labbé Grégoire, for, for instance, who is the, the most famous one. But the, the abolition of 1848, it's not really because of, of the church. It's another revolution in Paris. So that will be the second republic, which is like a very short uh, regime that only uh, lasts for four years. And in the first month of the of the revolution, once again, France became a republic and the word republic is related to, you know, equality and freedom and we are all brothers, etc. And at the same time, there are uh, in Martinique, for instance, in May 1848, there are very uh, important insurrections led by slaves. So it's it's uh, more nowadays we consider that it's a mixture of different things leading to the abolition for a very long time for over a hundred years for over like 150 years, uh, everything about the second abolition was about uh, a French man, a white man named uh, Victor Chelcher. So you have statues of Chelcher everywhere in Martinique. And for a long time, he was almost like a god, like uh, the the white savior who came from France who liberated us. And this year, I I know it's a a long story, but this year, uh, two statues of Victor Chelcher were uh, destroyed in Martinique because uh, young Martin activists uh, will tell you that uh, this white Frenchman uh, is not the only reason why uh, Martin people are free and he cannot have all the, the attention of as I saved you. So yeah.
3: So. Could slaves become French under Napoleon? Like, so they, were they, they were actually, French were they French actually considered French people?
1: So and, under the French Revolution, Uh, of the 1790s, what happened is you had uh, people of color, so black people and also uh, mixed race people in Haiti, for instance, who became uh, officers of the French army, which put them in a position of power. And the basically reinstated slavery in 1802 was a sort of conundrum for for these men, you know, uh, if you, during the revolution is basically fed with a propaganda telling you that uh, there's a French Revolution, everybody's free, everybody's equal, of course you're a Frenchman, you're fighting for France, and then all of a sudden uh, there's a change of regime in Paris and all of a sudden you are going to be in a different position. So, so yeah, these uh, issues of French ne- Frenchness, slavery and citizenship are very uh, central since the 1700s. And for instance, in the 1790s, at the time of the French Revolution, they were the first uh, black congressmen in Paris, representing uh, the colony of Saint-Domingue.
2: So I was actually going to ask about that, you know, with regards to, I know sometimes, especially back in that day, communication could take a while to reach the colonies. So during the French Revolution, when slavery was abolished, kind of what was the process of actually taking steps back and like getting out of the slavery system and like, you know, having leaders of color and different things. Like what did that kind of transition look like?
1: Uh, I don't know, it's a tough one. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I guess like, what... was
2: it was it purely like a name or were there actual like concrete efforts being taken? um you mean in, in, in i don't the, know in the
1: condition of the uh, of the people who are set free right like you know within
2: it's, outside of no, france it's, like
1: it, it's not it's not total uh, freedom the first abolition should not be uh, romanticized uh, too much uh, either there were still uh, for instance forced labor and uh, issues like that it's ju- it's just that the system was different and change. And you are not going to be a slave forever, but we cannot tell that it was immediately a, a perfect utopia or something like that. Absolutely not.
2: Right. Yeah. Was there, was there a wave of people leaving the colonies and moving to France during that time?
1: Yes. So, yeah. so that's an issue that, that became big in the 1700s and even bigger in the 1800s uh, enslaved uh, people uh, from, for instance, La Réunion in the Indian Ocean, who uh, managed to, uh, to to reach Paris and slavery was legal in mainland France. So that was also the big contradiction. Uh, there, there's not going to be uh, slavery uh, in, in France ex- ex- except uh, in, in the colonies. So when the enslaved were um, touching <laughs> French soil, they had uh, uh, a claim to to freedom, and there are a couple of uh, uh, famous examples of um, emancipation of, of of people from from the Caribbean or from La Réunion uh, coming to France. One big example, I think, it's in the 1820s or 1830s. It's a man from La Réunion named Furcy who uh, uh, managed to come to France, and he, I think he basically was suing his master and, uh, and um, the courthouse of Paris set him free after a very big uh, um, um, famous trial. So, so yeah.
3: Um, I want to just come back to the, to the France, uh, USA connection. Um, So when, when, when French people I, I know it's sort of a hard to generalize, but when you know when someone like the president, for example, who says there we are not going to be revising our our selection of who gets a statue and who does not, when he looks at the the current situation in the u s and the racial unrest we have here what is, you know, what is the perspective on w- why we have that challenge? The, so, yeah.
1: So, so the, 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 even if you go really, really, really far to the right, even if you go to Marine Le Pen, yeah. uh, the uh, national rally, She will tell you what happened in America is a disgrace. The police in America is a disgrace. You cannot compare it to the French police because the French police is more is better organized and it's a different issue. The the issue of Adama Traoré is not the same as the one of George Floyd. And so they are going to be very um, adamant to uh, to, to criticize and also to, in a way, to uh, distanciate themselves from the American issue, the American uh, police violence, and to say that it has nothing to do uh, uh, with, with that. So, so that, that's, yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's important. and then if you, if you even go further, um, if you forget about police brutality and you only talk about statues and issues of, of um, racial inequality in America, uh, the French answer is, yeah, but America was founded, uh, um, you know, with slavery when French was not.
3: Okay, uh, because that, that slaves was- were never fully in France the way they were in the U.S.
1: Yeah, it, in a way, it was okay. almost like a sort of outsourced problem, you know, like, no, 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 we don't do that here. We have colonies specialized in that on the other side of the ocean.
3: Yeah, okay. <laughs> That's uh, that they, they outsource slavery to the, yes. to the colonies.
2: I know, you know, in your in your role, you, as a tour guide, you focus on a lot of art and there's a lot of kind of culture. Um, and, you know, with this exhibit being, you know, not as prominent as you'd like, but it's, you know, it's, it's growing, right? There's kind of a growing movement around sculptures and art in France to kind of address this conversation. I guess kind of, um, In your opinion you know how how has art and literature and music kind of played a role in French culture and handling conversations and discomfort around racism or discrimination and how do you see that kind of helping move things in the right direction?
1: Yes I think it it does Uh, culture in in general representations um, music and arts in general can can play an interesting part uh, but I think it depends like the, for instance, racial issues are often talked about uh, in music, in like, for instance, in French rap music, which is quite big, uh, they they don't shy away from uh, talking about uh, racism and things like that. But I think it's when it gets more in- institutional that uh, uh, arts that require something more of a, um, uh, approval from institutions. I think this is when friends get a little bit um, cold feet or late or even sometimes even coward. Uh, these issues are not really been, in my opinion, confronted in French cinema in a really uh, frontal way. Um, okay. In a while. It's not, it's not that often. It happens once in a while, but I, I think uh, most of the time, these issues are not taken seriously, or it's always from a dominant point of view, and um, and it's hard for um, for uh, yeah minorities to to have their uh, words out in in, in some um, areas. Like uh, I just mentioned, cinema, but I would say the same for TV or museums and exhibitions. You can tell that. Uh, we 're not there yet we 're not that uh, visible especially because and I think it 's also because of of the internet that that might be right that we right. we have the internet and we can see uh, sometimes African Americans or black British people in positions that we're not a, about to to have yet so so yeah that 's um, like uh, it's it 's an example I always talk about but um um, I always talk about um you know racism in French racism in America, and Americans telling me about racism in america and Once I explained that the first time a black man uh, was the anchorman on uh, on on the news you know at night for for the big uh, uh newscast yeah. it was in two thousand and five yeah. it was only in two thousand and five so so yeah. it 's super late it's it's it 's not just late it 's like hard to explain late so yeah that's that 's one I'm just talking about representations Um, um, earlier, we were talking about um, uh, uh, wealth gap with uh, with Ari. In France, I think we also tend to measure um, public policies with more like um, um, social class than race. So, I was reading an article okay. that was maybe five years old about a very um, uh, elite high school, public high school in Paris. And they were talking about the way this high school is pu- recruiting children. And they said, We are not a bourgeois uh, high school because 18% of our uh, students are um, uh, working class, come from working class families. And at no point in the article, they mentioned anything about race or nationality, national identity or anything like that. That's not something they really think about. And I, I, I was I was not necessarily blaming them. I was just wondering if it was an American article, they would probably talk about uh, ethnic groups, but they would not say, OK, 20 percent of the kids are from the working class. I, I don't know. I might be wrong. I was just it's just a, yeah.
2: no, it's true. I... I mean, in my limited experience, I definitely feel like that's not, yeah, we have a different way of breaking down statistics. And I think there may be, I think, yeah, definitely like where the, um, like a blue car, white collar, working class situation, I think that's definitely further at the bottom and it's more focused on ethnicity and diversity. And those are more of like the target groups that we're aiming for yeah no that's that's true it would It would be i think written and, and organized differently for sure absolutely and so,
1: so if you talk about uh the equivalent of what you would consider as a sort of French ivy leagues uh you don't really have uh affirmative action uh based on on ethnic group you have some things. Uh, related to uh, social class. Like for instance, uh, if your parents have lower incomes, you're not going to have the same tuition fees or they are going to, to help you in some different ways. And, um, and about 15 years ago, there is a one school uh, in Paris named Sciences Po Paris, political school, of, uh, school of Political Science. They decided to have a, a program uh, for uh, students coming from uh, I don't know what it would be the word, disenfranchised are areas, and that's the closest they, 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 they get to uh, uh, an affirmative action based on ethnic ethnicity or race.
0: If you are interested in viewing the recorded event discussion, visit mitfrance.com. Catch the second part of the interview in an upcoming episode. Amy Vogel is an MIT 2020 graduate with two Misty Israel internships under her belt and will move across the Atlantic to begin her postgrad life in the country. It's one thing to spend three to six months abroad. It's entirely another to relocate from your native country. But Amy is excited and ready to do it. I got to interview her about how her extensive experience in turning in Israel and her acclimation to the culture prepared her to make the big move.
4: I studied, I was in course one, which is civil and environmental engineering, um, class of 2020. So I just graduated and um, I was also minoring in urban planning. Um, I'm really interested in public transportation. So I kind of wanted to be right in between the like civil engineering and the urban planning kind of um, sectors.
5: So what did you end up doing in Israel? You said you did two internships.
4: Yeah, so um, the first one was in the spring of 2018, which was after my sophomore fall. Um, And that one was at the Technion, which is a university in um, Haifa. Uh, Sometimes they call it like the MIT of Israel. Um, So that's kind of the vibe there. And um, that one was in the transportation research department um, of the Technion and I was working alongside a PhD student there who was researching dynamic toll lanes. Um, And so I got to do a lot of work with MATLAB and with Transmodeler. My hours were really flexible and it was just a really great experience, a really natural transition from being at MIT to being in that kind of university um, environment. And um, it was kind of like just doing a Europe, but in Israel, so that was pretty cool. Um, And then after that, I so I kind of knew already that after I graduated, I really wanted to work in the industry rather than in academia. So I wanted to try um, doing an internship that was more like in the industry. Um, so I loved being in Israel and I wanted to stay. So I decided that like for the summer, I would do um, an internship and try and get one in Tel Aviv. And I wound up getting an internship at Optibus, which at the time was like a medium-sized startup in Tel Aviv um, that does that has a bus scheduling platform Um, but since then it's grown immensely and it now has like a bunch of international and like US offices too which is kind of cool. Um, So first when I was there I wrote a market research report on school buses and then I also um, did a um, like a comparison of different mapping platforms. And I wrote some blog posts for them too and really just got to do a lot of different things in different departments. So um, that was also a really great experience and it really shaped um, how I kind of envision my future career playing out.
5: So it seems like this is the kind of work that you could do anywhere. What attracted you to Israel the most?
4: Yeah, so... um, I have a lot of family in Israel and I had visited Israel um, a lot of times with my parents. Um, And I also went on MIT's birthright trip through MIT Hillel, which is like a free trip to Israel for Jewish young adults. Um, So I knew that I loved being in Israel. um, So it, it kind of naturally made sense for me to go there. I also know that they have a really lively startup scene, so I thought that would be fun you did
5: the birthright before, um, did you, you know, have any expectations doing more of a long-term, uh, trip to Israel? Um, any assumptions?
4: Um, so I was kind of familiar with Israeli culture, but I really hadn't stayed in Israel for longer than like a few weeks before. Um, I also hadn't really been in like a university setting or a professional setting before. So I didn't exactly know what to expect. Um, Although I felt like I had a basic understanding of the culture, but to be honest, like I still learned so much because Israeli society is just like this incredibly diverse um, society in terms of like religion, culture, beliefs. So even though like I was familiar with kind of the, the culture of like my family and like people that I had already met, I still found like so much to learn. Like, for example, uh, the people that I worked closely with at the Technion, many of them were Israeli Arabs. And that was like a whole facet of Israeli culture that I really hadn't been exposed to before. Um, and so even though I did kind of have this basic, uh, familiarity with Israeli culture, there was just, like, still so much for me to learn. Were there
5: moments of culture shock for you that, so, like, deeply divergent from maybe, like, American culture that you were used to?
4: Yeah, definitely. Um, So, I feel like, especially recently, um, the political environment in the U.S. is such that, like, it's very, very polarized. Like, I think everyone kind of knows this at this point. And like, really, like, politics can like, make or break friendships. Like, if you know that somebody has like, different political beliefs than you, you might like, not talk about it, especially if you know that you need to have like, a working relationship with them and stuff like that. And then you also might like, assume that people have the same beliefs as you, just due to like, how, like, what their lifestyle is. You might assume that you know their politics. But what I found in Israel was that this is not the case at all. Um, like people actually talk about these issues sometimes and they're like really intense conversations. People have all kinds of different beliefs. It's not just like one or the other kind of belief, um, but there's really a spectrum. And also you can like have these really intense conversations and be like totally shocked that somebody you kind of assumed had the same beliefs as you actually has completely opposing beliefs and you can get into these like intense discussions and then a few minutes later you're going and having lunch with them and talking about other things so it's not really the same kind of uh charge to the conversations um which might be kind of surprising because uh in israel the politics definitely feel a lot closer because it is a much smaller country with a lot more kind of at stake um but that is kind of how it works and it's definitely uh, different in that kind of way.
5: So were those things that you could talk about in the workplace? Like what was your relationship like with your colleagues?
4: Yeah. I mean, I definitely like, didn't talk about politics all the time. Uh, It's just, you know, not something that I wanted to get into like emotionally. Um, But I, I, Talked uh, with my colleagues about like all kinds of things. We talked about work a lot, um, but also just like you know what they're doing with their friends or like different neighborhoods that they live in. I was always kind of thinking about maybe moving to Israel, so I was wanting to learn more about like what life is like in different areas, like where I might want to move to, um, where they went to university. It was really interesting to hear about that and like their experience in the army, which um, Israel has mandatory conscription so um basically everybody went into the army um and yeah we talked about all kinds of things
5: so overall how would you describe the work culture in a
4: sentence um it's very casual and friendly um like the people that you work with really feel like your family um, and but at the same time everybody really cares about their work and so just because like people dress more casually or like address you more casually and you can talk about all these kinds of personal things with people it doesn't mean that like they're not taking their work seriously because it definitely um people are very passionate about what they do and really want to do a good job interesting
5: so after your first internship you know how did that go and did that motivate you to go for a second one
4: yeah um the first internship was like it was a really great transition into living in israel um and i kind of could like dip my toes in the water a little bit because I was living like at a university campus, and I really had like everything taken care of, and a lot of people spoke English. there was like an international school community there with lots of like students from the u s who were studying abroad and so in that way, it felt very familiar, but at the same time, like I could go out into like the uh, areas nearby and Um, go to different cities like on the weekends and explore so kind of uh, see different areas of Israel that way and um, through like while I was doing the internship at the Technion they also had like a transportation career fair for the students so I could talk to like all these different companies at the career fair and kind of learn more about what's out there and do some networking so I think that like while I was interning at the Technion it kind of gave me the space to think about like maybe what's next for me because I was starting to feel like I really did feel comfortable in Israel and I liked being there. And I kind of wanted before I went back to MIT to like try a different aspect of being there. Um and so through those connections I sort of zigzagged a little and wound up at Optibus. So it all worked out.
5: Nice. I wanna go back to the beginning when you were applying for the MIT Israel program. Um, mm-hmm. What was that process like? And what did you have to do to prepare for three months in Israel working?
4: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so first of all, I'll say that like I think the process for me was a little bit different than it was for most people, just because um, most people would go like over IAP or during the summer, but I actually went, like, during the spring semester and, like, took that time off of MIT, technically, um, so I kind of, like, approached David and Samantha, um, about my interest in doing Misty Israel, um, maybe around, like, October or November of that year, and, um, and there had been people in the past that had done it in the semester. It just wasn't as common. Um, and so they kind of like walked me through the application process, and um, I did a course on Coursera about Israel because that's part of the requirement for doing Misty Israel. Uh, well, normally you would take a class at MIT, but because of like the timeline of my application, um, I wasn't able to, so I wound up doing it on Coursera. And other than that um, I think i wrote like a personal statement and i had to send them my resume um and like of course i i think i had to renew my passport because it was like going to expire within like the next six months or something um so kind of some logistical things like that um as far as the application and then as far as preparing um for going to israel so i actually didn't start my internship until March, um, and that was intentional because I wanted. I actually had an externship set up in New York for um, IAP, and so I did that. And then I wanted to give myself a month to kind of like breathe between the externship and going to Israel. So I had like a whole month to just like prepare and pack. And I visited my friends at MIT a few times and like said goodbye to everybody. Um, yeah, I think just. Um, there wasn't like one thing in particular I don't think it was really just like being able to have that time to like prepare um and I think once I got there, it all worked out great
5: was the decision to do the internship over the semester um you know based on any you know, logistical things like how did you feel about you know missing a semester at MIT yeah,
4: so um Around like S- October, I think, um, I just was starting to feel a little bit like I was burning out, which is really a problem when you're only a sophomore and you still have like two and a half years ahead of you. Um, I just felt like I kind of needed a change of scenery, and um I didn't know what to do, like I even thought about transferring to be honest, but like that didn't feel right like I felt like I wanted to finish at MIT I just didn't feel like I was ready to like charge straight ahead like I kind of needed to like refocus a little bit um and get some industry experience and so it became clear that like it really made sense to do MISTI because that would allow me to kind of still stay connected with MIT um but kind of just take a break from classes and like gain some life experience, gain some industry experience all at once, so it was kind of the perfect solution, Um, and I thought about, like, doing it, so I could have done it in the summer, but I just really felt like I needed to do it sooner rather than later, Um, and I did, like, I did miss uh, ring delivery, and that was something that I was pretty sad about because that's a pretty big deal sophomore year when, like, everybody goes and gets their class rings, Um, But it was either, like, doing it sophomore spring or, like, junior fall. And I knew that there would also be, like, things I would miss junior fall. And, like, I had some friends that were going to be seniors who would be graduating. So I just felt like it was kind of now or never. And anything that I would miss, like, it would be worth it in the long run. Um, And honestly, I feel like, especially after having, like, the second half of my senior year canceled because of COVID, it kind of doesn't even feel significant that I missed like one important ceremony in order to spend like six months in Israel, which really ultimately changed my life way more than like ring delivery would have. So it definitely worked out.
5: I appreciate your honesty because I don't think a lot of students know or or feel like it's right to leave for a semester, leave from MIT.
4: Um, At least that's what I've observed. Yeah, and I can understand, like, definitely, I mean, I went to um, a high school where, like, pretty much everybody went to a college, like, right after graduating, Um, and it was definitely the expectation that, like, you go through high school in four years go right to college go through college in four years start working but like once i got to mit i started meeting more and more people that like really did not go on that direct path i met a lot of people that took time off between high school and college or who took time off in the middle of college like honestly A huge chunk of my friends at MIT probably did not just like graduate straight through in four years. So I think that like it can definitely feel intimidating, but when you actually look at the whole picture, many people do not take that direct path. And I think that there's a reason for that.
5: Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Was there any moment in particular? that made you realize, you know, I actually want to stay here permanently and I can see myself living here.
4: Yeah, that's a good question. I I don't think there was any one moment. Um I think like there were several big factors. Um one factor is that is my boyfriend who I met when I was at the Technion. And so we're like it's been hard to be long distance and it didn't really make sense to be long distance forever. So it kind of made sense that like, if we wanted to stay together that I would move to Israel. Um, And another factor is just like having that experience um, working at Optibus. It's like, that was really the kind of job that like I could see myself having after graduation, whether it's at Optibus or at a different company that's like a similar environment. So kind of having that experience to show me that, like, I can have my dream career in Israel. Um, And then I think also there were definitely little moments along the way, like, when tourists would actually stop me and, like, ask me for directions. Like, it's kind of little things like that where you start to be able to, like, see yourself actually living there and, like, being a local. Um, I started, like, really taking studying hebrew seriously and my hebrew has like really improved which i think even though you don't need hebrew in order to get around in israel because so many people speak english it like really makes a big difference to be able to like understand the local language and speak to people in their native language so it's kind of all these little things and a few big things added together
5: yeah i was actually just going to ask you about your uh, proficiency in Hebrew. Um, it seems like you know it's not fully required to be fluent, um, but you know how much experience did you had with the language beforehand?
4: Um, I knew how to read and write um, from like going to the like, Hebrew school at my synagogue when I was a kid, um, and then I knew I had done like some Hebrew lessons, like spoken Hebrew lessons. Um, in the years leading up to me going on Misty, but I was by no means fluent. Like I could kind of get around like at the grocery store if I needed something, stuff like that, but like definitely couldn't have actual conversations about like meaningful things. Um, And I mean, like everybody that I worked with spoke excellent English, so it really wasn't a problem in the workplace. But I did feel like I wanted to be able to actually like understand the conversations people were having around me in Hebrew. Like when they would speak to me, it was in English, but I wanted to like understand my environment and like understand people better. Um, and so I like continued studying Hebrew. And recently I did a course, um, through Middlebury language schools, which was like all in Hebrew. Their whole thing is like, you're not allowed to speak English for the duration of the course. Um, and so now, like, I'm still not fluent, but I'm at, like, a pretty advanced level. And so I definitely feel pretty confident, even though I have a lot more to learn. But I'm excited to, like, still continue building up Hebrew until I can, like, get a, get around comfortably.
5: So when you were, like, moving around the country, maybe, like, going about, uh, were, were, like, Native Israelis, like, okay with you not speaking in Hebrew like I want to know like in general like how welcoming the people were you know as someone not from the country
4: yeah um people are super welcoming to tourists in Israel Um, sometimes they can be a little bit impatient but like they're definitely willing to help you Um, you just have to like stop them and ask them for help ask them for directions and they'll always help you as long, like some people don't speak English so well, but like they'll still try and help you as best as they can. Um, It was, sometimes it was a little bit nerve wracking to like ride public transportation or something like without really understanding what's going on, but you kind of get used to it and you get through it and you just kind of have to get over that hump of like not being afraid to ask for help when you need it and not being afraid to like take your time and make sure like the bus driver understands you or something like that. Um, And I think it's definitely a skill, especially like coming from the U.S. where people are like really want to be like polite and all of this. But in Israel, you really just have to be assertive and um, like stand up for yourself and make sure that your needs are met.
5: How did your family and friends feel when you made the decision to moved to Israel permanently?
4: Um, My family was really supportive. I think that they understood why I wanted to go. And um, like I said, we have a lot of family there. So my parents know that like, I'll still be close to family, even if it's not them. Um, And of course, they'll come and visit me as soon as it's safe to do so. Um, Yeah, and I'll definitely miss my friends. But I think like, (laughs) we've all seen the past few months like how much you can do over video chat anyway so I think I don't know like hopefully I'll be able to come back and visit um, relatively frequently but um, I'm excited for this next step in the journey and I'm really grateful that everybody has been so supportive
5: were you able to uh, hang with the other Israel participants
4: um yeah so I mean in the spring I was pretty much the only one there um so but I mean luckily since I was at the Technion and there was like the whole Technion international student community I was still able to like hang out with people my age who like were English speakers and all of that um And then in the summer, um, there were a bunch of Misty Israel students who showed up, and I did get to, like, do some things with them. Like, we did a Shabbat dinner that somebody hosted at their apartment, and I think there were, like, a few other social things. So, yeah, it was really nice to kind of have everyone um, nearby.
5: What advice would you give to students who are considering to intern in Israel? Maybe there are students who want to move to Israel to work there. you know, I want to know what they can do to help themselves and make the most of their experience. And also, you know, what are the possible opportunities that students can have either like, like work-wise or culturally? Um, what would you say?
4: Yeah, so um, I know that I think the Misty Israel students have been placed at like a huge variety of different experiences and of course there's also like the global teaching labs program um and so I think like really David and Samantha will find like any placement that you could possibly want um and of course there's also they have like partnerships with lots of different universities so even if you don't quite know like how you would fit into the industry you could try doing like a research internship at a university that would basically be like europe but internationally and full-time um and i think that as far as like general advice on just whether or not to take the leap of course i'm gonna say do it um but really like there's no reason Not to, as far as I'm concerned, like I think doing Misty is one of those things that, like, you won't regret doing it, you will only regret not doing it. Like, you're only going to learn about yourself and grow from the experience, even if it feels scary. Like, it's really one of those things that will give you so much life experience and, like, so much more confidence in yourself. Um, and as far as preparing, I think that, like, just one kind of logistical piece of advice is, like, the most important thing I think you could do to prepare in advance is to learn how to read Hebrew, um, because it does have a different alphabet. And I think even if you just know how to read Hebrew letters, and you don't know how to, like, speak or understand, I think it will still help you, because you'll be able to, like, read, like, signs better and a lot of times it's a word that's like written in hebrew but it's like actually english or it's like the name of a city or something so just like having that skill will help you kind of get around better
5: so i want to close out um probably the biggest thing that people want to know uh what is your favorite israeli dish
4: <laughs> yeah okay so um first of all i love like most israeli food i just love like how incorporate so many like vegetables and just like fresh food um, into the dishes. Um, It's probably tied between shakshuka and sabih. So shakshuka is a dish that is usually like for breakfast and it's basically like eggs poached in this like tomato sauce. So I really, really like that. And then sabih is kind of like the cousin of falafel. So, instead of falafel balls, you have like eggplant and egg, which sounds like a weird combination, but it's delicious. And you can actually get it at clover.
5: Oh, nice. yeah, that's really it's really cool. Um, so you're moving tomorrow. Thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Um, good luck with the move. Um, I hope it goes smoothly, you know, given everything. So yeah, thank you thank so much. You.
0: Thank you so much to Amy Vogel and Kevi Duna for speaking with us. Misty Radio is a project from MIT International Science and Technology Initiatives. It is produced in collaboration with me, Sonia Sampson-Hill, Ari Jagovowitz, Eduardo Rivera, Justin Leahy, Marco de Paula, Nereen Das, and Rosabelli Coelho-Quesar. Special thanks to Bridget McMahon for assistance. You can listen to us on WMBr Cambridge 88.1 FM or wherever you get your podcasts to close out take a listen to seven goblins a song by japanese artist masayoshi takanaka see you next time
3: you <laughs>
1: from them and so to fill their bellies one day